Can I throw an aside? You can cut this out if you want. I will. But I saw that they just yeah. Please do. I just I saw that they just made a sequel. They just made a, a Christmas story movie where the same kid plays the kid as an adult. And yeah. I saw the poster, and he doesn't have. He has two eyeballs, and I was like, they made this movie wrong. I'm not gonna watch it. Oh my god, you're right. <laughs> Hello? 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 Hey, quiet! It's him again! The Mona! You're in an elevator. A producer says they're looking to make a new movie, but they say you have to make a horror movie based around a holiday. What holiday? Are you picking and why? Uh, Arbor Day. Arbor Day. The Happening has the <laughs> lockdown on trees getting revenge. It's not It's not going as hard as it could be. I think you could do a real solid nature revenge built around trees retaking earth, retaking plots of land, retaking cities, and uh, turning human beings into compost. I, but I think you can make it kind of gnarly uh, and do it uh, f- fun and good. No offense, M. Night Shyamalan. He's bad at movies. <laughs> Oh, I, I have to disagree there. <laughs> I even kind of, I even kind of like the happening. Th- that was we'll, uh, we'll talk about some. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll talk about some tree-based uh, violence when we talk about the 06 Black Christmas, of course. <laughs> I was thinking Arbor Day. Um, it's a shame they've really all been done, and it's such a cliche to say Halloween. I, I mean, any movie set around Halloween horror or otherwise is good because I love Halloween decorations. I love the yeah. whole like scary but not um, idea, but. Uh, I don't know. It could be Veterans Day and you could do sort of a maybe like a feature length version of something like what Joe Dante did for like Homecoming. It could be sort of like, you know, ghosts of like, uh, you know, even like Bob Clark's uh, Death Dream or uh, Dead of Night or whatever the go to whatever the real title is. I don't know. He calls it a third title in that interview. Something like that, you know, where like maybe uh, veterans from Vietnam or from Iraq or something coming back. I was yeah, I was going to say Death Dream on Flag Day. Yeah, to call it Veterans Day or Flag Day. Yeah, mm-hmm. although Sean Penn made a movie called Flag Day a few years ago, so unfortunately, uh, Flag Day. It's yeah, yeah. Uh, you can use a Sean Penn title; nobody cares. <laughs> I am unfortunately not among the dozen people who've seen it this time around. But... <laughs> Snow, what about you? I'm going Easter. I want surprises. I want to bring like gross amounts of pastels, but oh, in with yes. the horror somehow. I, I don't know exactly how I'd make it work. I need to work on the elevator pitch being concise, but but someone popping out of an egg at some point, <laughs> definitely resurrection, lots of possibilities for sequels, you know, keep the jobs rolling. Yeah. I love a full pastel color scheme for yeah. I, honestly any movie, but also yeah. a horror movie. I think that's genius. Yeah. It, like it needs another name. I love the idea of someone opening up an egg and there's an eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> An eyeball. I got eyeballs in the brain. Yeah. Yeah, I think you got eyeballs on the brain. They think it's going to be a Sacagawea dollar. Welcome back to Split Picks. We are back. It's been a while. We haven't talked 
since October Horror. And uh, yeah, we looked at Italian horror. I had a blast doing that just the whole way through. The Italy's got some good stuff. And uh, we thought we should probably keep the uh, horror theme going because it's Christmas and somehow we've uh, never made the logical jump to, you know, go from Halloween to Christmas, which I'll say is probably top two holidays for <laughs> horror movies. But today we have... I'll just say the A-team joining us. We've got Jim. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Doing well? Good. You're on winter break now, right? I am. Uh, yeah, I just turned in grades. I am now a free man. Good. Good. Glad to hear it. Thank you. Bennett, you're back. Uh, you had some more apartment uh, issues this time. Ooh. How's that going? <laughs> How are you? It's good. It's 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 dry over here now. Uh, thankfully, thank you everybody for rescheduling. But uh, ooh, brr, there's a there's a spooky chill in the air. Does anyone else feel that? Ooh. A little bit. <laughs> and Snow, you just moved to a new apartment. How are you doing? I pretty good. I don't know if I've unpacked all of my brain yet, but it's partially there. So you know, I'll try. It's a start. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if any of us are fully brain right now i'm getting over a cold that just refuses to go away so if we say stupid things it's none of our fault we're not liable we um, still get to be the a team yeah <laughs> you said it, we're doing this because snow you reached out and said why hasn't split tooth done a christmas horror series yet and it was just so obvious like i don't know so <laughs> We're here, but I'm just curious, what what movies were you watching that made you want to take a deeper dive into Christmas horror? Black Christmas is certainly one, mm-hmm. and I love Rare Exports, which I actually watched for the first time with Jim over there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, that's another one I love. And then, I mean, honestly, I grew up on Nightmare Before Christmas, and I know okay. now it's like overdone and whatever, but it totally set the mood for me growing up of loving the creepy side of Christmas, so... And I just didn't feel super warm and fuzzy holiday this year. I was like, I want to talk about some people dying around Christmas and, you know, all that. Tis the season. (laughs) (laughs) Cheer myself up in a very nihilistic way. There you go. Your own little weird gift to yourself, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Jim Bennett, do either of you have any standout Christmas horror favorites that uh, you either watch yearly or just love? (laughs) Black Christmas is the big one, and then uh, Christmas Evil over the last couple of years has become another one. Um, I saw a, a pretty good horror double feature of Christmas movies last week on uh, 35. It was uh, To All a Good Night and Don't Open Till Christmas, both of which oh. are, are pretty poorly reviewed amongst people who follow me on, or who I follow on Letterboxd. But I thought they were both a hoot. Maybe it was just being with like a packed audience. But they showed the Black Christmas trailer beforehand. And, like, there's an example of how to show, like, everything that happens, but still make you want to see the movie. (laughs) You see, like, every kill, but you see it in these weird, like, snatches. And um, it, it of course, has the immortal tagline, if this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Delivered by this kind of guy who sounds like a cut-rate James Mason. It's so good. Really gets you in the mood for some some Christmas horror. Is that the one where somebody at some point hangs someone on an antler? No, that's Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yes. Ah, okay. Yeah. I have a slurry in my head of horror movies. There's so many of them. No, that's Silent yeah. Night, Deadly Night. We just watched Silent Night, Deadly Night 5 for the first Ooh. time. Have any of you seen that? I don't think I went past three. I didn't know there were more than three uh. until this year. Um, 
Mickey Rooney plays a toy maker named Joe Petto. What? <laughs> uh, I've heard of this. Yes. <laughs> I gotta see this. That's all. What I'm era? Say. What era? Mickey Rooney? Ooh, like two thousand nineties. Okay. There's a new box set with three, four. I mean, I guess I'm in. <laughs> It's actually he was the top star in Hollywood from uh, 1939 to 1941. Two whole decades, guys. Show some respect. <laughs> Two whole decades. Jim, what about you? Any Christmas horror favorites? As I mentioned, I do. I just have a slurry in my in my brain. I do. I mean, I like Silent Night, Deadly Night Two. I like. Um, there's one you just wrote about, right? Uh, what is it? Something something. Para Noel. Yeah, Dial Code um, Santa Claus. Dial Code Santa Claus. Deadly I've seen that a couple games. of times. That movie is awesome. It's so much. Fun. Um, although I will say, you posted a screenshot that was like a picture of like car headlights beaming out on the on the the like unhoused guy that that is the like bad Santa. Um, and I was like, oh, this screenshot is kind of better than the whole movie. But but I love the movie. The whole movie is great. So, I um, couldn't find the shot I wanted because right after that, they show it from inside the car. And he does like uh, a like messianic, like, yeah. I'm here for you. And it's so creepy because it's just like yeah. the headlights with the silver beard. <laughs> oh, movie's so good. <laughs> it is a brilliant film, yeah. But we're here today because you've all mentioned Black Christmas already. Our first idea for this podcast was to try and keep it on the lighter side. We thought, why don't we look at Bob Clark? Great director who, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize did two of the greatest Christmas movies ever. I'm just going to say it. Um, but yeah. he, he directed both A Christmas Story and Black Christmas. So we thought it'd be fun to look at just, you know, how one person can do two holiday classics that are just so different like that, but also kind of are oddly similar. <laughs> but then Bennett said, why don't we just do the three Black Christmases? Because those are... Because Bennett likes to watch worse movies. He does, it's true. <laughs> it torments all of us. I like going to bat for pieces of shit. <laughs> yeah, you did choose the worst one. <laughs> but Bennett, why... I'm just curious because I think a lot of people just say like, well, okay, obviously... The original is the best. I don't think there's any argument on that. But the other two both have their defenders. But why did you want to look at all three of these for this episode? Well, it's it's interesting because the first one is such a timeless classic. I first became aware of it through this countdown show that used to always air on Bravo, this top 100 <laughs> scary movie moments thing that aired it felt like every week for years of my childhood they would air this and black christmas was among the highly rated films that like i had never heard of was not like a household name i don't know if maybe it was not like kind of like widely seen for some years or not like widely distributed but it was something that like stuck in my mind for forever and I, shutter actually just redid this specific countdown uh this year like they found the old bravo countdown or they just recreated the oh no, no they, they did their new version <laughs> they like full-on like rebooted the I, like basically it's like branded the same way and everything um, okay. so this is you know very much top of mind for a certain sort of nerd again but anyway um when the 06 trait when, when the 06 film came out and that trailer was all over like e and vh1 and everything i was watching as like a you know a pop culture obsessed uh like 12 year olds that reignited in my mind, oh, yeah, Black Christmas is that film you've heard about on the, the countdown a bunch. Um, so I watched that and was like, well, wow, this this really is a classic. And it's it's been a perennial favorite. It, it is not just one of the best horror movies, best Christmas movies, best Christmas horror movies. It's one of the best films ever made, folks. It's it's a, it's a real classic. And then uh, I, I, I think what's so interesting is that you have this timeless film that has been remade twice. And I, I use remade kind of in quotes because as I think we'll talk about, 
um, even the one of these films that's really beholden to the original in terms of like characters having the same names and plot beats being repeated is really quite dissimilar from Bob Clark's film. You have this timeless film and then an 06 remake and a 2019 remake that are both as of their time as it can possibly get. There are early talky musicals that have aged better than the 06 film in particular, I think. Um, but at the same time, and maybe it's just the, the you know, the, the recent dives into Fulci and like late Argento and some of like the sort of trashier sides of like Italian exploitation. There's something to be said for just making a movie as gross as you can possibly make it. And like every single object that's there, that the camera focuses on being used as like a weapon of some sort. I don't know. I, on repeat viewings, when I got over my sort of knee jerk aversion, I couldn't I couldn't help but feel a little bit of affection for the 06 version because I think we'll all agree it definitely it looks better than a lot of the horror movies today. Look, I don't know. It's 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 got an aesthetic. And then the 2019 one, um, that, that's another one that I, I think I had an unfair reaction to when it came out, both because you know I, I felt a certain protectiveness over the original film and because the first trailer for the 2019 film truly shows you the entire plot in a way that even our, our uh, you know, our, our current day trailers that, you know, we're accustomed to seeing the final frames of film and trailers. And uh, even still, that one shows you a lot. But I don't know, I, I thought it might be interesting to, you know, see how the uh, the original two, uh, the, the, the two remakes rather compare to the original and to, uh, you know, make two, uh, two brave souls try to defend the, the two kind of maligned versions of Black Christmas. Jim, of course, the coward here, yeah. is, uh, is is going to bat for the original. Sorry, it's a very long answer. The short version is I, I really love the original and um, am, am growing more and more fond of the two remakes. So with that being said, Bennett, which version did you pick? Ah, of course, the 06 version from uh, Glenn Morgan, who I believe has only otherwise directed the remake of Willard that preceded this. Oh, I wish I'd rewatched that. (laughs) I've never seen it. That's one of two horror remakes made in 2003 where R. Lee Ermey says the line, you're not afraid of a little blood, are you? Beautiful. It's a weird IMDb-ass trivia fact. It's also like famous. The thing that is famous about it is that despite having Crispin Glover, it's worse than the original Willard, right? Like that's the only thing anyone cares about about that movie. Um, So it's interesting that that's this guy's this guy's legacy is making two deficient remakes. <laughs> he also wrote um, the first like three Final Destination movies, I think, okay. which I love. I've got a lot of affection for. Finding finding out that he was a Final Destination guy really kind of helped put this uh, 06 remake in a new perspective. The fact that like we'll often like focus on these objects and you're kind of just waiting to see how it's going to end up like killing somebody. Um, I don't know. And the, the there's a there's a like a winking. It, there's very like winking direction throughout which feels very much like we've just like set up these rube goldberg machines to watch people like die in elaborate ways which like i don't know can get tiresome extended uh really past like 90 minutes but thankfully this movie is like 81 minutes and <laughs> 10 minutes of credits it's a lot of credits I was really struck by how many minutes of credits. I think I think it might be a result of like the I, four rounds of reshoots. Well, it definitely. Oh, maybe. I was thinking that it was like yeah. they were like, we need to hit a specific runtime, so we're gonna just dump uh, a lot of words in here. That's one way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so Bennett, you had the first pick. Snow, you had the second pick. Which version did you pick, and why? Well, I picked the 2019 one because even the the original is my favorite because obviously it's everyone's favorite. 
Um, I didn't want to be a coward, so I left that <laughs> to Jim. I'm good at it. No. <laughs> um, I actually, I saw a lot, so I often don't love the super, super politicized movies that are, like, very focused on being, you know, quote-unquote woke and everything. And I felt like this one did it better than a lot of movies I've seen. And then I liked some of the story stuff they were doing, so I figured I'd go to that for it. <laughs> All right. And to our coward, uh, Jim, why Hey-o. Why did yes. you luck into talking about the original <laughs> one? <laughs> because I'm slow to respond to emails, baby. Um yeah, I have the I have the default position of of uh going to bat for the original Black Christmas, which everyone openly acknowledges is is the best movie out of these three films even the other of, filmmakers both i would do. say pick pick most pools of 10 movies it's among the best of them yeah so it's you know it's not a hard one to go to bet for so i'll uh i'll just i'll just play color commentary while they fight it out for second place <laughs> <laughs> well should we dive into bob clark's first does that make the most sense sure yeah sure sure yeah so if you ask the average person they will likely tell you that Halloween is the first movie to really kick off the slasher genre. Um, Jim, on a synesthesia yes. episode a few years ago, I, I think it was Jason who told the story of uh, Bob Clark having a conversation with John Carpenter. Do you remember this, uh, we'll call it legend? <laughs> I actually just listened to an interview with Bob Clark where he recounted the story Perfect. and I was like, he's lying. <laughs> uh, but he, yeah, he has a conversation. He has a story about having a conversation with John, uh, Johnny Carps about uh, having finished this movie and running into old Carpenter and being like, you know, if I was going to make a sequel, I think I'd probably set it on how, you know, I'd probably set it on Halloween. I'd probably just call it Halloween, you know, uh, and it'd just be about this guy getting out of this, leaving the sorority house and uh, murdering more young women around town. And John Carpenter was like, you think you, you think you're going to do that? Is that a movie you're going to make? Is that what you're doing next? And he was like, nah, I'm done with the, with the slasher world. I've kicked off the genre. I invented it. I am a genius. I'm going to go make porkies. Uh, and John Carpenter was like, yeah, cool, 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 cool. And then went and wrote uh, Halloween. Um, famously, often, as you say, considered sort of the the, the er slasher film. Uh, despite, as, as you sort of allude, pulling most of its cues, not most, a lot of its cues from, uh, from this. This, and one might argue, also Giallo films. Yeah. <laughs> so I think... It might be a good way to start with this film by just saying, basically, almost 50 years later, this movie is probably more famous than it's ever been. And I think anytime people see it, there's that moment of like, wait, this came when? Like, it's just kind of one of those movies that you really have to understand when it came out to really appreciate yeah. how great it truly is. So and if you all want to take a crack at this, I think that'd be a great way to get going. But why are we still talking about this movie and what are its greatest strengths? I think in addition to it is, it is a strong, I think if you look at the sort of pantheon of important early slasher films, it is one of the better amongst them. 
But it's also, you know, it's like notable that it's so early. I mean, I would note that it is the same year as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. So it's not like so mind blowing that it comes out in 1974. There's a lot, you know, Herschel Gordon Lewis was making the things he was doing 10 years earlier. Right. He had already retired by this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's not it's not in a vacuum. Uh, Mario Bava also was doing Mario Bava stuff 10 years before this. But but among American films, it is very early for what it is doing but i think the other sure yeah canadian north american (laughs) north american films uh it's still america uh it's it's very early for what it's doing it's also um i think what's most striking about it is and i don't i've only seen i think two bob clark movies i haven't seen porky's i don't remember what else he made um death dream Children oh, okay. Play with dead I've things. seen a, a few. I've seen a few Bob Baby Clark geniuses. <laughs> Rhinestone. <laughs> okay. I've seen all of Bob Clark's movies. Uh, and, and one of the things that is striking, at least about this and a, f- a, a couple of those other ones, um, is his is his sort of uh, engagement with humanity yes. in a way that uh, a lot of... I mean, a lot of filmmakers try to engage with humanity, but a lot of horror filmmakers don't. They work with sort of iconography and sort of using things as theatrical representations of what they are meant to be rather than uh, rather than sort of directly human warm things. Right. And this movie really engages with trying to make its characters into into lovable but flawed. I, that's a dumb thing to say, but in, into sort of actual human beings. Right. Who are who are existing in a world. Um, and I think that is a thing that. That not only is it really early to engage with, right? Even if you watch Herschel Gordon Lewis or Mario Bava or any of any sort of earlier horror movies, I mean, even I don't know, I, everything I can think of. You go back as far as like Universal horror; it's like things are very symbolic in the way they exist on screen, um, and so it's it's one of the best examples I can think of that tries to make characters in a horror movie more immediate and real rather than symbolic. Which Bob Clark clearly has a has a touch for, um, and and does I think in a really good and loving way. Uh, so I think that that is what ultimately is is the reason we still talk about it, and the reason it still stands out. Mm-hmm. And can I say that I feel like that's part of the reason for me, anyways, that that film is terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. The way it engages with humanity, it makes it like so real, even though there are these very like stylistic choices, obviously, but like. I always remember the scene where they're finding the girl's body in the park. Yes. Yeah, and it brings yes. it home that there's just like horror all around and we're seeing yeah. like one pocket of it happen, but it could happen to anyone. And it feels like this very vulnerable, real space Yeah, that I think wouldn't happen if he didn't have that relationship with humanity as a director. Yeah. That's a scene. I will, we'll come back to that. Cause that there's a few things in there that are just unbelievably well done. Ben and anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just really kind of like remarkable how many things that we take for granted that this movie does a couple years before the movie that we credit with like inventing all of these things, as well as like several other movies. I mean, in addition to like the, you know, POV stuff um, sure. and that, the, you know, the whole concept of like the final girl. There's also like the yeah. call is coming from inside the house here, yeah. you know, which is such a, you know. Uh, you, it's like it's like Rocky in a way for horror movies in the way that it like it, it presents all of these things that we now consider you know like horror cliches that are really actually like really uh, thrilling when presented here by like a filmmaker of this caliber and a cast like this. Yeah. So Jim, maybe this would be a good time. You want to just give us a little background about what Black Christmas is about? Sure. Yeah. 
Um, it is speaking of the the calls coming from the inside the house, right? It it's sort of built on a couple of uh, like sort of enduring urban legend and apparently also some local actual murder stories. Um, but sort of it's built around. And I actually forgot this was an element of it because it's not what stands out the most to me in the film. But it's sort of built around the 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 old sort of what's the original story? It's like a babysitter and she's getting phone calls and she calls the police and they track the calls and they're like, they're coming from in the house, right? Well, that's just sort of the old story, right? Like that's, you can read that in scary stories to tell in the dark, right? There's a version of that. Yes. Yeah. That's where I first encountered that story's been around forever. Um, and that's sort of, it's, it's on some level a riff on that, right? But it's, it's also a riff on sort of a black gloved murderer and a riff on, uh, just, just like, abject murder terror um where where, i mean the plot is really loose right it's like a sorority house and it's christmas and an unknown murderer maybe named billy has crawled up the outside of the house into the attic and is just murdering the people in the house that's it that's the whole plot of the movie everything beyond that is sort of the social dynamics of the people in the space uh who are some are friends some of them are less friends and uh some of them are townies who are uncool <laughs> so says margot kidder yeah yeah <laughs> so early on the sorority starts getting these weird phone calls obscene obscene they are just truly bizarre i mean super bizarre they're like i am legion like we hear whole spaces and multiple voices and it's crazy they're like yeah. even kind today of the abusive, calls are nuts. but not by any normal standard yeah, yeah. Yeah. When I've like showed the film to people, like the calls are sort of like a tough like uh, uh, you have hill to get to across. Yeah. You have to be like, yeah, this this I, this is pretty rough stuff. I know, I know, but like, <laughs> and they let you sit with it for so long. Yes. Yeah. Like the call. Oh, they like, go on for going forever, on forever, <laughs> and watching all their faces. It's, it's and then they were recorded separately too. So it's also like how good of like performances Clark is like getting out of sure. them, like uh, and and that they're giving that they don't know what they're reacting to, and he. Edits it together so perfectly that they really seem like they're reacting yeah, to these on, calls. But on set, it's, it's just Bob Clark being like, I'm scary, I'm spooky, I'm coming for you. I, I'm scaring you. Hey, all right. Yeah. Um, but it's a testament to how shocking they still are that the calls in the 06 version, or the one call, I think, sucks in comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to kill you. Ah, ah. Like, come on, folks. They I did it better in 74. Truly, like, disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, revolting. I heard the the main voice guy in one of the interviews, he said that for a lot of it, he was upside down so that his body was crushing his throat so he sounded weird. <gasps> That's amazing. Genius. <laughs> I believe it, because yeah. those sounds. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw an interview with Bob Clark where he said there were five people. He was one of them. <laughs> But yeah, he's like, yeah, we just kind of taunt each other to just do the grossest things we could think of. And then just, you know, at the very, like the one that always gets me is when it just goes from the crazy voice to just, I'm going to kill you. It's like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) to me, like watching this again last night, the thing that stood out most is just how Bob Clark captures emotion throughout this movie. And like, it's a huge testament to how good the actors are in this, but like, especially in that first phone call scene just watching all of their faces it's just like a rainbow of like oh happy sad oh god they're all just like in totally different places mentally um also we should note that like this this cast is like 
a phenomenal cast for a movie, a so horror good. movie, yeah. a Canadian tax shelter horror movie from 1974, right? We have Olivia Hussey, hot off Romeo and Juliet, uh, like Margot Kidder, uh, Andrea Martin coming over from SCTV to, to be the funny one. There's, I don't remember who else. A million other. Oh, the dude from 2001 in yeah. sort of a yeah, bit exactly. role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so surprised that like it's not like he caught all these people before they had big roles right. that they're known for. Like Kier Delay was off of 2001. Margot Kidder yeah. had already done Sisters. I mean, she hadn't done Superman yet, I guess. Sure. But, uh, but they Olivia were known. They were all Romeo known entities. Yeah, they were all known people. And he was like, "Hey, do you want to come get murdered in a sorority house?" And they were like, "Yeah, great." <laughs> Which can you imagine? Like, who's I don't know who's like equivalently famous right now. Uh, Zendaya, is that right? Am I hitting the right echelon? I think that's how you say it. <laughs> I don't understand modern fame. <laughs> and we we learned so much about the characters. Yeah, in this this opening scene, that's like intercut between like Billy coming in the house and uh, like Claire basically going up to pack and like the, this sort of party wrapping up. We learned so much about these characters very very quickly. The intercutting is so great. Yeah. Uh, we learn about like Claire's like sort of like dynamic with her boyfriend who like her dad doesn't know about. We learn about Barb's relationship with her mother through this like phone call. We know that Phyllis, uh, Andrea Martin's character is sort of like this like intermediary. I think her relationship with Barb throughout is so beautifully captured. How like, I don't know, it's like really complicated, but there's still this like love there. Yeah. I think like this one in the 2009, uh, 2019 version, both do such a great job of like capturing the complicated relationships between everybody mm-hmm. and how they're like, they're really in this together, but they, they, you know, they feud and stuff. Whereas like the 06 one, they all just fucking hate yeah. each other. Like yeah. it really, yeah. it's in the very cynical, angry, like that acid was... 06 horror remake sort of headspace. One of my first notes on that was I was like, the Margot Kidder, Margot Kidder in the first movie is like drunk and a little belligerent, but fun and playful. And they're friends. And sometimes she pushes people's buttons. Right. Yeah. And in the, yeah, the woman who sort of plays like that, that equivalent in the 2006 movie is just awful. <laughs> they're like, that's right. Right. <laughs> She's terrible. Drunk. Everyone hates her. And you're like, that's not quite the same, but okay. So I bring up how Bob Clark frames emotion in this because I was struck by the similarities to A Christmas Story because there's so much of this movie that feels like a lot of these characters could have driven home to the Christmas Story house yeah, and it would yeah. still make sense as a movie. Oh, you should make that version <laughs> where one of them leaves and drives home and then you have to edit her into A Christmas Story. <laughs> Or comes back after Black Christmas. New project for next year. Guys, yeah. I got this great lamp. <laughs> <laughs> Which shows up in what? The 2006 one, right? I think I think it does. Yeah. I, I didn't catch it, but I've heard the, I've heard the homage reference. It yes. comes back in one of them. I saw it. Yeah. But I do think it's worth talking about how Bob Clark really does make this movie just feel so bright until yeah. it's not. Um, but he, well, like the audio quality is so warm and, and yeah. like fuzzy. And the lighting. And the, yeah. the colors are beautiful. The lighting's Yeah, it's it's all, it's got like a haze on. It is shot like the way, if you were going to try to shoot a movie, a horror movie like this right now, you would shoot it like a Lifetime movie, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. shot in like a very uh, posy, yeah. warm, fuzzy, like gentle blur kind of, yeah. the whole aesthetic of it says Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's kind of comforting. Yeah, it's thankfully shot on film and not digital, so it has this well, yeah, this sure. warm, comforting glow. I but love the opening shoot credits. But you stuff on film and not have it be warm and pleasant. <laughs> oh, no, 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 and not have, yes. it, have this look. But I love the opening credits so much. I think they, not to keep comparing this movie to Halloween, it's one of these movies where you have sure. to almost do it a disservice by constantly comparing it. Comparing it. But I think the um, the opening credits uh, do just as great a job of like placing you in Christmas as the sure. opening credits of Halloween do, of placing you in Halloween, just that, that, that jack-o'-lantern, or the opening credits of Don't Open Till Christmas, the burning Santa. Um, <laughs> Just the, you know, we're on the house. It's very quiet. It's very sedate. We're hearing like silent night playing. Yeah. Um, again, I, not to get ahead of ourselves, but such a contrast to the opening of the 06 film, which immediately places you in like, it's a, it's a buzzier, louder kind of Christmas. But yeah. I really love that like Clark and, and throughout, I mean, so many of the kills are like intercut with like Christmassy stuff going on. Yeah. He really like, he takes both sides of this um, very seriously and like really seems to capture them so perfectly. I mean, one of the things I like so much about I, I don't love a Christmas story. I, I probably just by virtue of having seen it like too many times over the years. But I think one of the things it does well, and one of the things that like it's it's like uh, like rosy like Wonder Years ass narration kind of belies is the fact that it's largely a movie about how much it sucks to be a kid. Like how much sure. being a kid is, even if you look back on it with fondness, it's a lot of like people telling you what to do. It's a lot of like not being able to do what you want to do. It's a lot of just kind of getting like pushed around and being like, all right, put this fucking coat on. All right, you know, here, go, go, you know, stand in this line. You know, here's, here's, you know, eat this. Um, and he, you know, is, is not, he, wear the, wear the bunny suit. Like he's very, it's, it's very, it's a movie that's very tuned into those moments, the moments of like when childhood sucks because of like the lack of autonomy. And I think here in like, but he, he talked in a lot of interviews about Black Christmas, about like wanting to make a college movie that wasn't like a beach bl- blanket bingo sort of a movie. Yeah. And I think he, he you know, he, he does that not just in the fact that people get killed here, but the fact that we see a lot of like sadness and a lot of like the weird relationships these people have with like their parents and their friends. There's a lot of like much the same way that like Christmas Story for all its like nostalgia and all its like, you know, looking back fondly really captures what it's like to be a kid. This film really captures, I think, what it's like to be like twenty something years old and like negotiating like whether or not you're going to go home for winter break. Like the the, the stuff with Barb, the stuff with uh, Claire and her father and her boyfriend. That's all. It's just, it's it's a very like realistic depiction of I think like what it's like to be like one of these people. Whereas like the 06 movie and even to a degree the nineteen movie are very much about like a film idea of college. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think maybe one of the sort of glues that that and I think this might be true across the Bob Clark filmography, although I'm not 100% certain on that, but certainly in these two films, is that it's 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 all people who are in a scenario where they have to get along with each other even when they don't get along with each other, but, like, on a deep level, they care about each other, right? Like, that's, that's like you said, there's a lot of sort of, like, scrapping in A Christmas Story, right? There's a lot of, like, people pushing people around and making them do things they don't want to do and getting mad at each other and fighting with each other, but, like, ultimately, that's sort of where the nostalgia lies, right? Ultimately, they all love each other, which, but I think that's also there in A Black Christmas, right? Where it's, like, there is this sort of deep, warm nostalgia running underneath things where like ultimately except for except for the like mystery murderer in the attic everyone really there's like a real love for each other even when they even when they're mad at each other or they hate each other that the other thing i sorry i just want to jump on just because i noted this i happened rewatched a christmas story and i was like this movie is 
good. I've never been like super in love with it, but it's like a good movie. Um, but there's a moment in it where the kids are in the classroom for, I think, the first time that we see them. And the teacher's coming in and like one of the kids hands out a bunch of fake teeth for everyone to put in. And all the kids put in <laughs> fake goofy teeth that are sticking out of their mouths, which is like a harmless charming prank uh, and the teacher walks in and is like hi and they're all like good morning whatever teacher's name is miss uh, shields thank you um and, and there's a shot of the classroom and most of the kids are too embarrassed to show their face with the teeth they're, they've all committed to this prank but most of them are like covering their faces or like kind of half down on their desks they're all super embarrassed about doing this thing that they're all doing together and i was like that's like that's a thing. If I were making this movie, if I, a hack, were making this movie, I would be like, teeth up. Show me them goofball teeth. I want everyone in a perfect grid of goofball teeth. I want it to be a really striking th- th- image. I want you to look like a spreadsheet you know, made like out of fake teeth. teeth cost? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's like, no, this is correct. This is kids like have a good idea but they're a little a little scared to do it even though it's just a cute harmless thing and it's such a strong beautiful moment and i think he does similar i think this film black christmas is full of similar motions right i think he just has a really strong understanding of how people exist in space and in the world Mm -hmm. um yeah i mentioned a christmas story because i think one of the funniest scenes in that is when ralphie goes to visit santa and he's you know uh football yeah football and then he's on the slide and he's like i want the bb gun and then santa kicks his head and says you're gonna shoot your eye (laughs) off but the way his face changes just like uh it's just like that (laughs) moment of realization where it's just like oh no everything's ruined but snow you mentioned the scene in the park in black christmas and i don't know why but it just connected between those two scenes when I watched it last oh, that's night. that's funny. Because when the dad thinks he's about to see his dead daughter, you see him approach and he just kind of has that moment like, oh, thank God. And then yeah. he turns around. But he's still looking at a dead kid. Yeah, but he turns around and <laughs> then the yeah. mom is there and he cuts it right when he like goes to pat her on the shoulder. And it's just like, that cut to me is just like yeah. Ralphie being like, oh. <laughs> it's just, I don't know how many people can do that just like flip of emotion and have it be convincing yes yeah. can i throw an aside you can cut this out if you want i will but i saw that they just <laughs> yeah please do i just i saw that they just made a sequel they just made a, a christmas story movie and where the same kid plays the kid as an adult and yeah. i saw the poster and he doesn't have he has two eyeballs and i was like they made this movie wrong i'm not gonna watch it oh my god you're right <laughs> um there, there was already a sequel with charles groden and uh mary steenbergen as the parents oh. called uh a summer story also called it runs in the family i i rented it from blockbuster as a kid i think bob clark also directed it it's not bad from what i remember Oh, um, okay. On my list. Yeah, it's like it's like a Christmas story, but in the summer. So there's all sorts of like summer antics. You know, there's like fishing Great. and stuff like that. Interesting. Um, yeah. Has anyone seen a Christmas story? Christmas? I have not. Yeah, I, I figured if it was good at all, I would hear about it, and I've heard absolutely yeah. nothing. So it kind of confirms everything I thought it might be. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, how could it? How could it be anything? Yeah. And fun fact, Jim, you, do you know uh, Peter Billingsley is uh, Ralphie? He uh, is one of the head elves in Elf. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's cute. I like that. <laughs> we should probably talk about Billy, though. Um, Bob Clark, I saw an interview with him today where he said something that I thought was really interesting. He said his goal with Billy was to make a killer 
who is a subliminal character. And he ended that by saying, like, when you see Billy, like, all you get is a hand or an eyeball. And yeah. he is the camera. I mean, how do you all feel about that approach? Because it is pretty revolutionary how they shot his Billy's scenes. And it's obviously, you know, like, oh, yeah, anyone can do that now. But Billy's pretty memorable. <laughs> he is for a dude we never see, right? Yeah, yeah we do see yeah. a hand a couple of times. We see a couple of eyeballs. Yeah. Are they always yeah. the same yeah, person's eyeballs, yeah. actor-wise? I genuinely don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we hear six, what, five voices, he said, yeah. right? It's, it's the bits we get of Billy are fragments, and and I don't know that they're consistent, which, which is smart, right? He is trying to sort of remove the murderer from the movie yeah it's so smart and and some of the things you know with the five voices that are said are suggestive of possible backstories but we have no idea whether he's mimicking whether it's him we don't even really know if his name is billy bob clark refers to the character as billy which is the only reason that i'm comfortable i i in the movie we don't know that he we have no inclination that he's actually billy right what's it he says What's the other name? Margo? Are you there, no. Agnes? It's me, Billy. Agnes. Agnes. Yeah. Agnes. Don't say what we did or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Like, don't tell them it's something. I don't know. But yeah, it allows you to like be as terrified as you would be in that moment because anyone listening to that phone call in real life would be going to their worst nightmare, and <laughs> it allows the audience to do the same thing. Right. I've never been pursued by a killer, but I don't imagine you're doing like a police sketch of his face in your head. I imagine you're sort of getting sort of bits and pieces. And I don't know, his um his his constant like vocalizations are terrifying. Yeah. Like, uh, I think it's after he kills Mrs. Mack that we like really sit with him like rampaging through the attic. So scary. Rocking yeah. the chair. Oh, right. Because it's worth noting, right? (laughs) We mostly hear him talking to them on the phone. Maybe that's not even true. We we think about him as talking to them on the phone, but we hear him probably just as much. We also talking to himself. Yeah, he just walks around and talks to himself all the time. He's just talking. He's like Popeye. There's also very much like the understanding that like any time two characters are talking, like he could be like anywhere. Yeah, you know. And obviously, like 06 really leans into that by having his eyeball visible in just about every fucking scene, but. In uh, in Bob Clark's, you know, it's like it's realistic that like you could probably scroll through and see like his shadow like yeah. moving around in like the backgrounds of shots. You know, you feel like that could happen. It's it's almost like ghost watch in that respect. I wish I could have come up with a way to relate it to Saw, <laughs> but uh, I, I'll, I'll come up with some for 06. Uh, and I do I do, do think I read that they had different people casting shadows at different times, just so there wasn't sort of a consistent body you could lock down on. That like when you're seeing shadows being thrown, they had just had they'd like grab someone and be like, "You're the shadow now." Yeah, because they do a really, really good job of creating uh, like a scenario where the cops would have every reason to believe it's David, yes. not just because he's like the disgruntled boyfriend, Peter, of the character, Peter? but yeah. because he's like around. Peter. Dur- oh, Peter, sorry, right? Peter. Yes, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, Peter. He's he's always around and like uh, he's always like acting suspiciously. Yeah, he's kind of around, a maniac. So, like, he smashes his piano. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, that scene, right? Like, who's gonna pay for that? Come on, right? Um, <laughs> a grand piano. Many, many thousands of dollars, that piano. Yeah. Even back then, yeah. <laughs> I, I like that the movie um, like has both kinds of movie cop and has yeah. like a yes. good, I think, pretty deft balance. We get that sort of like Don Knotts, yeah. like, ball, and then we get John Saxon as like the good cop who is like not good enough a cop not to be fooled, not to not think yeah. that it's Peter. Yeah. Like that's how good Bob Clark is about like setting up the red herrings. And then you also have the one that just laughs at everything. Yeah. 
Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. The guy, the guy who's like in the back. Yeah. I'm like, Yeah. Here, I'll do what I always do. That's kind of Lynchian, almost. Um, I was so stoked to see John Saxon. I I don't know what what why someone explained to me why do I love it when John Saxon pops up and things because I do every time every time I see him I clap. He's just so reliably good. This <laughs> and uh, yeah, this and Nightmare on Elm Street. He's just uh, he looks great as a as a movie cop. He is a good movie cop. Mm-hmm. There's also you guys ever see those pictures of him as like a seventy year old on the beach exercising with kettlebells. <laughs> Just being like no. a being like a strong seventy year old with no shirt, <laughs> worth looking up. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think we'll we'll start to transition out of this one because there's still a lot to cover with the other oh, two. Wait, can I give you one more? This is just a small observation. Yeah, I'll cut um, But there's, <laughs> I did catch there's. Oh, I don't remember who it is now. I think it. I, in my brain, it's Margot Kidder, but it could have been, honestly, anyone. Um, it's probably Olivia Hussey. It's talking to someone on the phone, and we get a on-screen, uh, her boyfriend says, I love you, and she says, I know, and I wrote, F uh-huh. off George Lucas. <laughs> you think you made yep, that joke up. The same thing. <laughs> <laughs> all these things we take for granted. Yeah. Everyone thinks Han They're Solo all made from Black up. Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, there's a painted hockey mask. Do people paint their hockey masks? There's a guy with a painted oh hockey mask. Oh my god, mask. can you imagine getting hit in the head so with a good. puck wearing one of those old hockey masks? <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> um, also, that crazy sweater Olivia Hussey's wearing with, the with hands? that hand pattern. I love it. I love. I Someone was that wearing sweater. that at the screening the other day, and I was like, I know I know that from somewhere. What the fuck is that? I, it looks like something Noel Fielding would wear. <laughs> so right. I, I have a question on Mrs. Mac, because she is probably my favorite part of this movie. Um, but when... Billy, I think, is in her room. It's like the last phone call. They have just like a record sitting there that's like the yeah. Mac. What is it? Um, the Something Sisters, because her full name it's like oh, Mac right, and right. something. I think because the dad. Yeah, I, I think that's her when she's a teenager. That's right? what Girl, I was thinking, but I've never I put think that so. together before. Uh, McHenry, I think maybe. But yeah, because like the dad says her full last name, and then the records there. Oh, and it's, and it's like, the same as her. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. They make some joke about her being like the vaudeville queen of like 1937 yeah. or something. So, I don't know. Maybe so that I think is she actually was. a reference to a showbiz career. I think it must be. <laughs> um, I, ugh, the, the hiding the bottle in the toilet tank. I understand it's just water. You know, I know how toilets work. but <laughs> Not gross. Not gross. Put it in a bag. It's not gross, oh, bag. It's fine. It's not gross. <laughs> I'm with Beth. That's what I want it in also, also, I think if you pulled alcoholics, <laughs> a pretty normal place to hide <laughs> alcohol. I'm sure. <laughs> Wait, I have one more. Th- Sorry, I have a bunch of notes that I'm trying to slam through before we move on. I this one and this one comes back. The cat's name is Claude. How do you think that's spelled? C L A U D. But I think C L A U D. Are you? You think it's U D E or you think it's W E D? I would imagine the U. Like Claude. Yeah. Like like is it? Here, here's my question: Is that a funny joke or was I reading it wrong? I like that. I think you read it wrong. <laughs> that's it, it's probably just like a pun that boo. Ninety nine percent of people every time. never watch. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, like Santa Claus. Yeah, exactly. Like Santa yeah. Claus. And, and the last thing that I think we just need to note before we move on is that this movie is for for a horror movie. 
and for a 1974 movie, remarkably progressive, right? Horror is, like, traditionally very conservative. Even now, it's, like, very much about, like, these people did sex, and so they have to die, right? Um, And this movie is, like sexually cool kind of with whatever Olivia Hussey's whole story is that she is gonna have an abortion regardless of what her boyfriend thinks and it's like and 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 the movie is on her side with that right uh there's sort of a whole runner where the police are like you girls are fine you're not going missing right there's there's a lot in it that is for a movie of its era and genre remarkably progressive which i think is i think it's probably well documented in essays i don't read so i don't know um but i but it is i think just worth touching on before we move on to the other movies definitely and i we will talk about this more with the 2019 remake because that is one thing the director will we yeah no that's like why she i'm surprised that that's part of the 2019 movie Is this a stretch or are you doing a bit right now, <laughs> No, I didn't pick up on that at all in the 2019 movie. That's why I mentioned it's important mm-hmm. to know like when this movie was created. Yeah. Because it is like, God, they're doing all of this like then? Huh. Right. <laughs> yeah. I saw, you still see movies that come out now that are, surely some are intentionally less progressive, but you see some that I think are unintentionally just being horror movies and still being significantly less progressive than this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's in keeping too with a movie that kind of like shows and doesn't tell and like trust its audience to like collect, connect a lot of the dots that like when, when, um, uh, when, uh, uh, what's her name? Jess, uh, Olivia Hussey's character is, is confronting, uh, Peter or, or sort of like, you know, just telling him what's up. She, he's like, Oh, I'm going to leave the conservatory and we're going to get married. And she says something like, you know, do you remember when we first met and you told me all about your dreams Mm. of being a concert pianist? And I told you all about my dreams. I still have those dreams. She doesn't have some monologue where she like outlines the dreams and is like, you know, and you, and you get to be a concert pianist. But I, you know, it's, it's just Bob Clark trusts his audience to like, take it as a given that we're like on Jess's side and that like these unspoken dreams mean just as much Mm -hmm. as if not more than like, you know, Peter obsessing over his uh, piano recital. And to me, that makes it more progressive. Like it makes it feel that much more empowering that it's like, so she doesn't have to defend her case. It doesn't even become a part of the murder story at all, really. I mean, other than that, we have our suspicion or the police have their suspicions about Peter, but it's not like a, this is, I feel like this is a weird thing to be, to be taking a swing at, but it's not like, uh, like if you ever watch like, uh, guess who's coming to dinner, right? Where they're like, where they're like, we're going to go to uh, immense lengths to make sure that the only reason you might not like Sidney Poitier's character is that he's black, right? He's like the yeah. most generous, the smartest human being. He has the best job. Super Sidney. Right? It's, it, it's, and but, they haven't even had sex yet. Yeah. <laughs> but, and Bob, movie, Bob yeah, Clark's yeah. not going to do that. He's like, he's like, she's a person. And that's good enough, right? Like, we we do learn more about Peter's dreams. And he's awesome at playing the piano. We see him play the piano for kind of a long time. Uh, and and it's like the kind of, it's the kind of like weirdo modernist stuff that I think is great. Uh, and he does a good job. Uh, and then, you know, so we're like, oh, he has dreams and they're great and he can achieve them or whatever. And she's just like, I have dreams. And we accept that because she's a human being, right? That is, that is pretty progressive for dealing with a woman in a movie. <laughs> Sadly. Yeah. yeah. Even her, even her conversation with Phil too, when she, when she like talks about it, they don't have like a big, they don't have a huge teary, like we're here for each other sort of moment. They have like a kind of like a moment of like understanding and like solidarity that feels remarkable given that this movie came out the year or maybe a year after, I think the year Roe versus Wade was passed in like, 
you oh, know, yeah. the U.S. Obviously, this is set in Canada in Montreal. Although I don't know, that might like complicate things more. Given I figure it's a little more Catholic, but also that it came out six years after Guess is Coming to Dinner. Yeah, yeah. Like Stanley Kramer is making movies at the same time that this movie comes yeah, out. Yeah, yes. And if Stanley Kramer had written Black Christmas. You better believe it ends with Jess giving a monologue defending her abortion before she goes to sleep. Oh, for sure. Killed by Billy. Yeah. Like, (laughs) I was gonna have one final point about Billy, but I think we'll lead into the second (laughs) movie with this because it's Billy is treated entirely differently from the first one to the second. I'll tell you what. In the first movie, here's my one problem with the first movie: he's not yellow enough. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Could have used a little more jaundice. (laughs) Um. But I think the thing that always gets me about Black Christmas is how it just leaves everything hanging and how it's like when she finally seems like, okay, she's safe. Like everyone's here. They're surrounding her in the bed, the killer. She killed the killer. But then it's like, oh no, the dad fainted and we have to take him to the hospital. Okay. And then she's just alone in the house. And then it just starts that brilliant zoom out. And it's like, Oh, there's still a dead body in the attic, and yeah. oh god, and the a murdering guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, it is just I don't know of a better horror ending than that because it's just like when all the girls come back, like <laughs> it's not done, <laughs> you know? right? And that yeah, yeah, yeah. that to me is just having no definition on the killer. Like we never see his face, and like he's just yeah. still there. They think all these girls and are that- still missing. Not even just no definition on the killer. Like, they don't even know who's dead at the end of the movie. Yeah. They don't yeah. know if that girl's <laughs> dead or not. Like, that's, like, such an unfinished ending yeah. in such a powerful way. Yeah, and I just remember watching this with friends, and when the phone rings so quietly, my friend just went, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Because <laughs> it, it's not just, like, zoom in on the phone, like, it's ringing. Right. It's just like, oh, no, it's going. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah we will talk i think by talking about the two later versions i think we're gonna cover more of the original so sure this seems like a good place to me to cut it for now does anyone have any final thoughts they want to toss out before we take a little break Oh, I, I love that bit where the like neighborhood watch comes over those two hosers who are oh, yeah. <laughs> like talking about like looking for the killer. Okay, well we'll and, keep um, you safe. Right? A great moment of them laughing yeah. at him. Yeah, we'll keep you safe. All right, uh, some great Canadian content in this film for sure. No, and um, I was thinking they're about like that we invite you in, you and they're like, oh, <laughs> sorry, you guys. Oh no, that's okay. I just I was thinking about that when you were saying earlier, Jim, about how everyone's like so like warm and cozy except for the killer. Like they all have genuine feelings, even though they're real people. And it, I felt like that extended to the community that yeah. he depicts and this environment that he depicts, where they're all like real people looking out for each other. Mm-hmm. Even the dumb dumb every character cop. interaction is so good. Yeah, yeah. He's an all idiot. His, he doesn't not love them. He's just an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And also with the search party, like when they close the door and she's like, you know, every window and door in this house is unlocked. It's like so many movies have done that. Yeah. They're just kind of like, oh, we should probably fix this. But like so many movies do that now. And it's like, but the killer's behind the curtain. You know, it it doesn't do that. (laughs) It just lets it Oh, it's true. They could like then be closing a window when he like jumps out from behind something or something. But no, he's just hanging out in the attic it's like yeah he's already got two of your friends upstairs <laughs> yeah yeah oh one more thing i this movie uh does like a cliche better than the movies that would follow too because like 
obviously like every horror movie it's a cliche to be like oh why the fuck is she running upstairs when like she knows the killer's there like but here it is like she knows the killer's up there she knows she can get out and she runs upstairs to potentially save like barb and phyllis like i know it's a it's a it's a great version of what would become a stock scene what would become like a famous like cinema sins sort of a scene yeah but it's also in this movie it doesn't ever i'm i don't know if i wholeheartedly believe this but i think to the characters it feels like there is a guy who's doing murders right um whereas in a lot of horror movies there is like an unstoppable force and to some degree billy does play that role right he is unstopped and he is an unseen force but it feels like to them there's like a guy who's killing people and when it's like oh there's a guy who's killing people in my attic i don't know about you guys part of me is like yeah i could fight a guy who's killing people that's just a guy (laughs) You know, I'd probably run, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and like just also with the cop, like if you screw this up, and then he just immediately like he's in the house, run, run, yeah. Jess, and then she drops. Oh, he's the such phone an idiot. Just like run. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> oh, and and yeah, sorry. One more thing. It's such a cliche to be tracking the the call. And it's such a boring yes. scene in movies today because it's just a guy sitting at a computer. Yeah, but when it's a guy yeah. running through a fucking warehouse, running through like the yes. ending of you have to find uh, the switch the Lost Ark through the switchboards and stuff to see a light yeah. going off, like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's much nicer. Awesome. Yeah. Great, I love that. The greatest film ever made, Black Christmas, nineteen seventy four. <laughs> I'm calling it right now. <laughs> Did any of you recognize the uh, the phone tracker from Christmas Story? Oh no, who is he in Christmas Story? He's the Christmas no. tree salesman. <laughs> Oh, yeah. that makes sense. That is the equivalent role. Yeah, pretty much. It's a great little Bob <laughs> Clark touch. <laughs> I love that. So I think that wraps up Bob Clark's Black Christmas for right now. But come back tomorrow because we're going to have another episode looking at the 2006 Black Christmas, which we'll get into it. It's a sequel. And then the 2019 remake these are so different from the first one i'm really excited to talk about these two um thank you for listening we have a little little mini creepy christmas horror series going right now on split tooth so check out what we've got going there and uh we'll be back shortly thank you for listening